This program is brought to you by the partners of A Root Awakening International. Help others find truth. Support A Root Awakening International today. Would it surprise you to find out that Yeshua's return does not happen in the blink of an eye, so to speak? Did you know that Isaiah 63 describes his return in detail as an event that happens over time? Joel Richardson explains Yeshua's literal procession through the wilderness at his return tonight, because it's the end of the sixth day, the sun is set, and this is Shabbat Night Live. Well, Shabbat Shalom to our fans. Welcome to Shabbat Night Live with Michael Rood. I'm your host, Scott Laird. Please welcome my co-host, All Things Partner Services, David Robinson. Shabbat Shalom, Scott. Thanks Shabbat. for having me on. Certainly, you know, we have some Passover stuff in front of you. We're gonna talk about Passover tonight. Joel Richardson's essentially talking about Passover. Mm -hmm. It's Passover Fest here at Shabbat <laughs> Night Live. Yeah. Uh, if, first of all, let, let's talk about the love gift here. Okay. So we, we can, uh, uh, Explain what is on the table here. So we've got oh. some. What is this? Uh, an oven mitt that we have? For yeah, this we year? have. This we have this uh, oven mitt. So you don't burn your hand. But uh, it has <laughs> writings all over it. Matzah and wine. Uh, eat lotsa, matzah. Uh huh. And uh, it's very <laughs> thick materials, so uh, very well put together. Uh, we also have the uh, pot holder. Right. And of course, it has cook, drink, eat, repeat. <laughs> it has all kinds <laughs> of things on here. And of course, the wine. And we have this foldable matzah. Uh, bowl. Now you, you get will. all of this bowl. with a hundred dollar love gift for this month's love gift. In addition to uh, Joel Richardson, or jo not, not Joel Richardson, he's teaching tonight. Right. But this right. is Kevin Fisher actually mm -hmm. who brought out the uh, Cave of the Covenant. You get that teaching with right. uh, this month's love gift items, and you can get the teaching if you want, just for a uh, gift yeah, of fifty dollars, mm -hmm. or for a gift yeah. of a hundred dollars, you get the teaching and all this and this. And then for a gift of three hundred, we have something extra we special. We have these on the really end nice uh, glass candle holders that say Shabbat Shalom on the. Uh, cool, yeah, so that is all for this month's love gift. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's only available through uh, this month. And you wanna get it before Passover, so you that's have right. all this stuff available this for Passover. This is prepping you for Passover. Right, now Passover yeah. is March 27th, and for the first time ever, we are doing Passover free, free. online. Yeah, right. It's free, we're doing Passover just like we always do with a ton of speakers. You get uh, Michael Rood's mm -hmm. famous Seder at the end of it all. You get actually a recipe, uh, like basically a cooking show. Mm -hmm. You get some recipes uh, that you can download. You get some stuff for the kids. You get all of that yeah. uh, on March 26 and 27. Again, it's free, but you have to sign up because we need your email address. Because we're right. gonna send you some links so you can watch the thing. That's the way this is done. So you have to register in order to get the recipes, to get mm -hmm. the coloring pages, to get the link to watch Passover. So right. that's what you have to do. Go to passovercharlotte.com or uh, David, if folks have trouble doing that or understanding what to call. do, you can yeah, call, Yeah, we'll right? be glad to help you. Just call the, call the office, we'll, we'll okay, give you the instructions. Good. All right. So that is Passover coming up March 26, 27. Sign up for it. And before we get to that, we have to get to tonight's episode. Yeah. And it's uh, really neat. This is about how Yeshua's return and his victory over his enemies is not instantaneous. I don't know about you, but I always grew up thinking, oh, this is this happens, bing, bang, boom. Yeah, the blink of the blink blink of an eye, eye, you're gone. All, all the enemies are dead. We all yeah. go to heaven, that's the end, and that's not I, really I the think uh, Yeshua's gonna wanna take his time with his enemies. <laughs> I really do, you yeah. know? Uh, yeah, and so, uh, 
Joel Richardson actually explains that tonight with uh, an episode we're calling The Desert Prophecy, so take a look. Now he returns from heaven with a sword, and in the same way that he came the first time, and that he, there was a process, there was a, a complex, there was a whole lifetime. His, his return is not that complex, but it unfolds over a period of time. And there is a very real, literal carrying out and affecting of the victory of the Messiah over his enemies. It's some time after he returns that he kills the Antichrist and his armies, that he's killing many of them, slaughtering them. Isaiah 63, we'll get into that. He's soaked in the blood of his enemies. And the book of Revelation draws from all of this Old Testament imagery, again, much of which is forgotten or ignored by many Christian scholars, but this was all widely understood. It was well known by the early believers. So there is going to be a mighty procession, a victorious procession. Psalm 68 calls it the procession of God. And it's like something out of the Lord of the Rings glorified this mighty victorious army. The armies of heaven are with him. He's leading them. Uh, we are with him, again, in glorified, resurrected bodies. He's setting the prisoners free. He's pouring out the wrath of God, and he's marching forward. And Isaiah has multiple prophecies where he talks about prepare the way through the desert for our God. Prepare this highway in the desert, in the wilderness. And again, we think, well, that's just all metaphorical, or it was all fulfilled when John the Baptist prepared the hearts of the people. Again, cyclical. It is literal. He will literally march in the same way that there was a highway through the desert with the Exodus. Jesus, Yeshua, as the greater Moses, will lead his people in one final ultimate victory procession from Sinai up to Zion. And this, the scriptures, the prophets testify to this thoroughly. All right, so there you go. That is what a little piece of what you'll mm -hmm. see tonight. Interesting stuff. Uh, I don't really think I've ever seen Yeshua's return like that before. Right. And so that is coming up tonight. Uh, now, before we go, we want to just show you uh, the new calendar. Right. Uh, here we are, the astronomically and agriculturally corrected biblical Hebrew calendar. You can get this calendar right now. There's where we are on the calendar this week. And all of the images on there are coming from this book called Battle for the Firstborn. Right. Uh, this is from Mary Nell Wiley. Uh, this is the widow of Ron, Ron Wyatt, Wyatt. Mm -hmm. who found the Ark of the Covenant, Sodom and Gomorrah, Noah's Ark, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, everything. Uh, it's basically what this ministry is built, built off of, really. Yeah, uh, and Michael sort of expanded on all of it. So uh, this is her new book uh, where she explains that the uh, death of the firstborn, the firstborn that died, we always see him in movies as a 12-year-old boy. Mm -hmm. Really, he was a, uh, an, a young adult co-regent, right. basically like a, a helper to his father uh, around Egypt, but he was the firstborn that died, King Tut. King right. Tut was the one that died. Yeah. The most famous ancient Egyptian of all time. And the photos in this are incredible. Yeah, they are, they're really neat. And most of them are taken by Mary Nell personally and her husband Randall. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so they now continue Ron's work and uh, they have all kinds of neat stuff in their basement uh, about all the, all kinds of uh, And you've got a chance artifacts. to see a lot of that. I've seen yeah. a lot of this stuff in person. And you can mm. actually take tours at their house. You know, you can uh, get on ronwyatt.com, contact them, and you can find out, you can go see their, this stuff actually in person. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, that's from Mary Nell's book. Uh, and she is also going to be a speaker at uh, this year's Passover. Mm -hmm. I'm doing a cooking show with Chef you've Rich got a cooking Hall. cooking show, yeah. Uh, we've got... Um, Nehemia Gordon and Keith Johnson coming mm -hmm. here to do a couple of a couple of uh, teachings. Mm -hmm. We have Tim Mahoney. Tim Mahoney. Going to let us know what's coming next. Yes, right? what's yeah. coming up next with all his uh, movie making magic. Mm -hmm. And uh, also we have the Chronological Gospel season three. 
Uh, this is the first look at what uh, Michael's masterpiece, uh, he, he taped all of this be before his stroke, mm -hmm. uh, strangely. So as he's still healing up, we get to see Michael's work that no one's even seen yet. And you're gonna get to see the first piece of that at Passover, it's a special thing we're doing right before the Seder, and of course the Seder is with Michael. That's right. We, we took the best one that he ever did at a hotel, and uh, it, it'll be it'll be lots of fun because no one's wearing masks. It's a big hotel room full. You know how we used to do life. Exactly. You know, and <laughs> you just kind of sit back in your house and go, Oh, I yeah. remember this. This is, this is a breath of fresh air. It is. And so uh, you'll get to do uh, Passover with Michael, with everyone from your home. Watch it all, it's all right there, just as it would be at, at the hotel room. You might even see yourself on the screen if, you've if, you, were this, here, if yeah. you were here with that actually Passover. So that'll be lots of fun too. So join us, it's all free. We're offering Passover free for the first time ever. Uh, it's a special thing we're doing for this year. Mm -hmm. So go to PassoverCharlotte.com and you can see everything there. Sign up because we need you to sign up before you can watch it. That's right. So there you go. Okay, thanks, David. Yeah, it's great. All right, so Yeshua's return does not happen in the blink of an eye, but over time in the desert, marching to Jerusalem. Never heard that before? Well, it says so in Isaiah 63, and Joel Richardson explains how it works next. Did Ron Wyatt really find the Ark of the Covenant in a cave beneath Golgotha? Kevin Fisher presents breathtaking evidence that brings this incredible claim to life. These two items are gonna come out one day, the Ten Commandments stones that God wrote as a testimony to the world and the eight millimeter videotape. And Ron Wyatt, his finding the Ark of the Covenant will be confirmed through that videotape. It was only then that I took time to carefully examine the rest of the chamber. The Cave of the Covenant with Kevin Fisher will take you back in time to amazing events that led to the world's most important and disputed archeological find of all time. But the only way to watch it is to receive it as our gift. Donate a $50 love gift and we'll send you The Cave of the Covenant on DVD or Blu-ray. Or for a donation of $100, we'll send you The Cave of the Covenant plus a Passover meal prep kit including a Passover-themed potholder, oven mitt, and soft-sided foldable matzah basket. Or as a special offer for a donation of $300, we'll send you the Cave of the Covenant, the Passover meal prep kit, and a pair of elegant glass candlesticks with the words Shabbat Shalom etched in Hebrew. These gifts are available only in March and supplies are limited. Make your donation today and receive the $50 gift, the $100 gift, or the $300 gift. Remember, this offer ends March 31st and supplies are limited. Call now to receive your gifts, 888-766-3610. That's 888-766-3610. Or get your gifts online at monthlylovegift.com.
The traditions that we have in modern day Judaism remind us of what we did in the temple and some of these traditions go back long before the temple in Jerusalem. It reminds us of when Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, brought forth bread and wine to Abraham when he came back from the slaughter of kings and Melchizedek, the Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, blessed the Most High with the blessing that Abraham then taught to his son Isaac and then was passed down through the generations. Yeshua said, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. He gave a tenth of everything because he saw the broken body and the shed blood. Melchizedek, as Abraham and all of his offspring, then continued to say this prayer, this prayer of sanctification, Barukata Yehovah, Elohino Melaka Alam, Homotzi Lechem Miharetz. Blessed are you, Yehovah, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And Yeshua said, This bread represents my body, which will be broken for you. And this is what Yeshua said the last night that he was with his disciples. This represents his broken body that was broken for us. And then the blessing of the wine. Barukatai Yehovah Elohim Melakalam Borei Peri Hagafen. Blessed are you, Yehovah, our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. And Yeshua said, This is a renewed covenant which will be paid for in my blood. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So Yeshua, as far as anyone understands it, is coming back. Of course he's coming back. Is he coming back to the Mount of Olives? That's what I've always understood, but I've never thought to consider that maybe that is not the case. Joel Richardson, welcome back to Shabbat Night Live. Uh, you're an author, researcher of such things, and uh, before the cameras came on, you told me something shocking, that Yeshua is not coming back to the Mount of Olives. I thought his feet were supposed to touch the Mount of Olives. Is this not it? So he will come back to the Mount of Olives, he will get there eventually. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but he does not come from heaven and land on the Mount of Olives. So this is from Zechariah, okay. the prophecy of Zechariah. And it's amazing how if you ask, again, those who are pretty biblically literate, you say, where does Jesus return to? Everyone will say, the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem. Um, the Muslims say he's gonna to return to Damascus. The Mormons say, I think Independence, Missouri, or Salt Lake City, I'm not sure. Oh dear, okay. <laughs> but uh, most Christians will say Jerusalem, again, based on two passages, Acts chapter one, as mm -hmm. well as Zechariah. And I'll say, everybody knows the passage where it says that his feet will land on the Mount of Olives. Everyone says, yep, that's what it says. It doesn't actually say land, it says stand. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. But if we understand the broader story that the Old Testament tells concerning the return of Jesus, we learn that there's actually quite a bit of, uh, quite a few events that unfold before he gets there. And even just reading Zechariah itself, 
actually, if you skip forward a few verses, what it actually says, it says, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And it's listing a series of statements, making a series of statements. It says the Mount will be split. Half of it goes to the north, half goes to the south. And then it says, and you will flee, speaking to the Jewish people, you will flee by the valley of Uzziel as it was in the days of uh, Uzziah, or you'll flee by my, uh, by my valley as it was in the days of Uzziah. Um, and then it says, and then the Lord my God will come with all of his holy ones. So I would argue that's a statement later that he comes with all of his mm-hmm. holy ones. But here's the thing is, if Israel, if the inhabitants of Jerusalem have their back to the wall, the armies of the Antichrist are occupying Jerusalem and Jesus returns to save them, why are they fleeing? If their savior has just landed on the Mount of Olives, then why are they fleeing away from the Mount of Olives? That actually doesn't make a lot of sense. I would argue, I would say it this way, that when Jesus returns, when Yeshua returns, when he splits the skies, when he bursts forth on the clouds and he comes back, the Mount of Olives will split on that day. That will be the day of the general resurrection when the dead throughout the earth are raised to meet him in the clouds. There will be a massive earthquake. Scriptures are clear. The Mount of Olives will split. They will flee at that time. And as we'll discuss, there are a series of events that will unfold where later he comes with them. The ones that fled will be with him when he comes back to the Mount of Olives. We who uh, will be raised and clothed with immortality at that time, as Paul says, when Messiah is revealed from heaven, we will be revealed with him. Uh, We're told that the angels, the armies of heaven will be with him. Okay, so there'll be this mighty procession, this parade, if you will, with Yeshua, with the angels, with the resurrected saints, with many of those that he has delivered from prison camps, many of those that he has rescued out of the desert, including those that fled into the desert, and he will return with all of them in a massive procession that leads up to Mount Zion. Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will enter in. Lift up your heads, you ancient gates. And he proceeds and makes his way into Jerusalem where you will have essentially the ultimate fulfillment of Sukkot. You'll have the enthronement of the Messiah on Mount Zion, and then ultimately it leads to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and behold, God dwells with man. You know, that makes a lot more sense, I think, because first of all, you say that in that day, um, I know that I've heard you say before that it doesn't mean that particular day when it all comes to a head in that day refers to a time period where all of this will happen. And then sure. for, for them to flee, well, of course, where are they fleeing to? Uh, so Yeshua is not gonna come back to the, the, the Mount of Olives. So I think that makes a, a lot more sense with, along with everything else we've explained in the last couple of episodes where you mentioned that Yeshua is going to rescue people from uh, prison camps, where this is not just a figurative thing that uh, that God saves me from my bondage, from my prison. Yes, it's metaphorical, but it's also quite literal. And it, and I, people always say that to me. You know, is the Bible literal or figurative? I say, it's always both. It's always both. And uh, I think that's what uh, what you're saying here, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And so, what I do in my book Sinai mm-hmm. to Zion is I begin at the beginning. Okay, so I begin all the way back at what's called the Proto-Evangelion or the Proto-Evangelion, which is Genesis 3.15. That's just a term that simply means the first gospel. And so all the way, most people, when they trace messianic prophecy, 
they begin with the Proto-Evangelium. They start at Genesis 3.15. So you have the fall. As soon as the fall happens, the Lord speaks to the serpent, and he makes this declaration. He says, I will put enmity, conflict, between you and the woman, okay, so between the serpent and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Seed there being plural, it's, it's plural and singular. It's both and. So it's your descendants and her descendants. Now, of course, Satan doesn't have literal descendants. That's metaphorical in the sense that Jesus says, your father is the devil because you do, uh, you follow after his ways, right? Eve, on the other hand, it is to a degree literal because you have the literal physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so forth. So there's this conflict between these two people groups, the righteous and the unrighteous, to keep it simple. But that will culminate with an ultimate conflict between the seed and Satan's final seed, so to speak. So the Messiah is the seed, and the Antichrist is the ultimate seed out of the unrighteous seed line. And he goes on, the Lord says, he will crush your head. So first he begins sort of plural. I'll put enmity between your seed and her seed. Um, And then he says, he will crush your head. So it's mysterious. He introduces this he. But then as we move forward throughout the biblical narrative, we have all of these prophecies. Because again, the earliest believers, okay, let's say Eve, Adam, they were believers. From that time forward, they were waiting for the promised one to come. They were waiting for this one that was going to come who would crush the head of Satan, the skull crusher. The promised one is the skull crusher. He's coming. But it was, in, it was understood that he would also undo the effects of the curse. He would undo what happened as a result of the fall and the deception that the serpent brought. And so as we move forward, we have to understand that ancient man, the believers, were waiting. And then we learn later that it's also the seed of Abraham. He's going to come forward from the line of Abraham. We later learn that he's coming from the tribe of Judah. We later learn in 2 Samuel 7 that it's the son of David, the seed of David. Okay, So you can trace forward messianic prophecy. And there are different scholars that have done this. Walter C. Kaiser Jr. in his book, Messiah in the Old Testament, classic reference. He does that. He traces messianic prophecy. But what I do in my book is I show that the Hebrews understood that there was another parallel line of prophecies. And these are prophecies that are widely missed by the majority of believers today. And these prophecies I refer to as the desert prophecies. And these don't describe a human coming back to save Israel. Instead, they talk about Yehovah coming back to save Israel. And it uses the imagery. All of these prophecies, they use the imagery of the Exodus. And so there's these parallel expectations. On one hand, a human is coming, the Moshiach, right, the Messiah. He's the son of Eve, Abraham, David. He's coming back. But on the other hand, throughout the Old Testament, there are these expectations that Yehovah, God Almighty, is coming back to save us. And it's not until later in the Old Testament, particularly in Daniel 7, the prophecy of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, that these two parallel prophecy, these two lines, these two threads become interwoven. Hmm. And so in the New Testament, whenever they talk about the return of Jesus, they have now in the New Testament uh, incorporated both of these expectations. So the, the second coming of the Messiah fulfills both. He fulfills all of the 
expectations concerning a human, and he fulfills the expectations of God himself coming from heaven. And it mixes the two. And unless we have both prophetic lines, storylines mixed together, we don't have a full understanding of what the Bible says about the return of Jesus. Hmm. So this is then another exodus. It sounds like this is just another, as we talked about it in previous episodes in this series, that uh, Hebrew uh, prophetic fulfillment is cyclical. Uh, it doesn't just happen once and done. It, it happens a, a, way, a certain way one way and then a certain way another way. So this seems to be the exodus happening again. Is that really what this is? Yeah, and this is important that you mention that too because the Greek view of history, it's just endless cycles. It's not really going anywhere. It's just kind of going around in circles. In the Hebrew, biblical view of history, things are being repeated, but they are moving toward an ultimate omega point. So like a spiral more than a, than a circle, really. Everything's heading toward the day of the Lord. Okay. So in one sense, it's linear. It's beginning with a beginning, and it's moving on to a particular point, but there are patterns that are repeated multiple times mm. until it gets to the culmination. So in the same way that the Exodus is the definitive story of God saving Israel from Pharaoh, in the same way, actually, to step back even further, that the creation account is the story of God subduing the chaos, the deep, the ocean, the waters. He subdues it. He brings order to everything. The Exodus narrative kind of recreates that, and it even has him demonstrating his power over the, the oceans, the home, the deep. Um, and it uses, sometimes the prophets use the subduing of Pharaoh, and it uses language of God slaying Leviathan or Rahab, the sea monster and laying his body out in the desert and this type of thing. And then where do we see in Revelation? We see the final slaying of Leviathan, the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil. We see the final crushing of the serpent. And so that same story that is kind of foreshadowed in creation is repeated at the Exodus, and then its culmination is when Yeshua the Messiah returns. Mm. And intermediately, he crushed his head when he was crucified and rose. Yeah, and so it's essentially the way I articulate it is that at the cross, he hasn't crushed the head of Satan yet. Satan's still the god of this world, but he has guaranteed his future crushing. It is as good as done. Mm. The Bible uses uh, the, the, I'll call it the <clears throat> prophetic perfect tense. And sometimes it, it refers to things that haven't happened yet as though they already have. And that's to infer that it is as good as done. It's to infer that it's as good as done. You know, you could watch, um, I'm a Kansas City Chiefs fan from Kansas City. So, you know, there's a certain point in the third quarter where the Chiefs just pulled ahead three touchdowns and you go, we won. You know, we haven't actually quite won yet, but it's as good as done. And the Bible actually uses that type of language quite frequently. Okay, so that's the... It's present, as, as in uh, he comes to steal and destroy. So it comes, is that sort of like a, it, it seems present, but is it future or how, how does that work? Well, so here's, here's a great example. Okay, so the foundation for all of these desert prophecies, the foundation is Deuteronomy 33. This is called the blessing of Moses. It's huge. And this is the final, really the final words of Moses before he dies. And it's, it's very similar to Jacob where like a father, he's blessing all the different tribes of Israel, like as if he's their father. But it actually says, most English translations will say, God comes from Sinai, or God came from Sinai. Sorry, mm, okay. past tense. But here's the thing, is that Hebrew verbs 
came, comes, come, is coming, will come. They, there's different tense forms, and one of them is called the perfect form. Well, the perfect Hebrew verbal tense, it can be any of the above. It can be past tense, future mm. tense, ongoing. And translators choose tense in English based on context. So they look at the statement that says God comes from Sinai. It's using Exodus language. God led Israel in the form of the pillar of cloud during the Exodus. And they go, this is the Exodus. It must be past tense. I would argue that Deuteronomy 33 is a future tense prophecy. Hmm. And in fact, that is how the New Testament interprets it. It interprets Deuteronomy 33 as referring to the return of Jesus when God will come from Sinai. So you can just as legitimately, in terms of Hebrew grammar, translate Deuteronomy 33, God will come from Sinai. Okay, so if God will come from Sinai, and we're talking about a pillar of cloud, are we talking about the same phenomenon? I mean, is, is that really what we're talking about here? Well, essentially, I mean, the Bible does say that Jesus will return in the clouds, right? Uh-huh. So I, I actually think we'll actually take some time to focus in on that specifically okay. because okay. it's a pretty awesome subject. But um, here's the thing. Most Christians, you know, you look at Christian art, uh, based on Christian art, iconography throughout history, the return of Jesus is basically, you know, this Caucasian hippie uh, who comes back in this, these blue skies on this white, fluffy cumulus cloud. Right? That's kind of usually how it's pictured. Mm-hmm. If you add in the imagery of Revelation 19, you've got the armies of heaven with him. But it's a, it's, that's basically what, from a biblical perspective, the return of Jesus, all of that imagery is rooted in the Exodus. Well, when God came down on Mount Sinai, it was a thick cloud. It was not a white, fluffy, cumulus cloud. It was storm clouds, mm. thunder, lightning. It was trembling, earthquakes, all of these things. And it's in the terror Um, of all of that, that Jesus will return. It will be in the storm clouds. It's not going to be a beautiful light, you know, spring morning type of thing or a late autumn day like Mm -hmm. 9-11. The skies were just beautiful. No, it is in the storm clouds because the sky is is black. The sun goes dark. The moon turns blood, right? And then he comes back. And that ultimately is the sign of the coming of Son of Man, which I think that will be good. We'll take some time later, um, perhaps... We'll do a special segment just on the sign of the coming of Son of Man because it's, okay. it's absolutely dynamic. All right. So, so where do we go from here then? Uh, we've got, so the Deuteronomy 33 is the foundation, yep. uh, you call it, for, the re- for all the return references. Yep. Let me actually open this up. Sure. This is just okay. too good. This is too good. So again, this is sort of the final words of Moses just before he dies. And it just follows on the heels of the Song of Moses, which we've talked about in some of the previous programs. Um, but it begins here, and I'm going to read it according to the tense, that I, because I believe it's a prophecy. I'm going to read it as future tense. It says, now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. He said, Yehovah will come from Sinai and he will dawn on them from Seir. So Seir is a prominent mountain down there in the south, modern-day Jordan, northwest Saudi Arabia, where the real Mount Sinai is. He will shine forth from Mount Paran. Again, mountains down in this area. And the language of shining forth, it's the imagery of the dawning of the sun, the rays of the sun shining forth, radiating forward, 
Throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, the return of Jesus is often used as, with the language of the dawning, the, the dawning of the new day, arise and shine for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Mm. Um, and it's also where the New Testament gets the imagery of him returning in glory. It's in the glory of the Lord. It's not the sun. It's the son of God. And normally the sun rises where? In, in the, the east. east. Here, it's shining forward from the south. And then it says, at his right hand, there was lightning flashing out of his hand. Some translations say fire. Um, and then it goes on. It's quite a detailed prophecy. Toward the end of it, in verse 26, it says, there is no one like the God of Jeshurun. That's the God of Israel. Jeshurun just essentially means Israel. There is none like the God of Israel who rides across the heavens to save you through the skies in his majesty. Now, some translations will say clouds. Um, you'll see quite a variety of translations, by the way, because this is actually one of the most ancient uh, forms of Hebrew in the entire Bible. If you're reading the original language, you get to Deuteronomy 33, it's like all of a sudden you just came to King James mm. Hebrew. You know, there was such a thing. So because of that, there are quite a different translations. This is the place, the first place in the Bible, where it says that God comes on the clouds. Yehovah hmm. is the cloud rider. And again, all of that imagery is later applied to the return of Jesus. So this becomes the foundation text. This becomes the foundation of all of the desert prophecies. Multiple other prophets later would reflect and build upon this imagery. And it's all these are all prophecies that get applied to the return of Jesus. Okay, well, we're going to get into all those other references in just a second. I hope you're enjoying this. I am. We're visiting with Joel Richardson and talking about uh, the return of Yeshua and how it's rooted in, even way back in Deuteronomy. If you're enjoying this, uh, please support Shabbat Night Live. It's the only way we can bring Joel here. And we want to thank you in advance for that support. We'll give you a couple of minutes. We'll be right back. Thank you for your support of Shabbat Night Live. Dare I say, this is the one place where you will find some very interesting information that you will not find anywhere else uh, from Joel Richardson and others. Uh, Joel, uh, you have brought up something that was very interesting to me right before the break. Uh, Deuteronomy 33, uh, talking about uh, Yeshua's coming uh, and basically taking some of the, the verb tenses in there and switching them around. Uh, and some people might say, oh, come on, you're, you're, you're making it be something that it's not. So how do we know, or how can we uh, even strengthen the, the notion that Deuteronomy 33 is about a future event, and that is Yeshua's uh, return? Well, so there are a few different reasons. It's a good question, uh, but there are a few reasons. First of all, let me just point out a few things with regard to Deuteronomy 33. First of all, scholars will all admit, acknowledge, that the Lord Yehovah is described in anthropomorphic form. He is in the form of a man. He is described as marching, as marching before his people. Lightning is shooting out of his hands. Now, what most scholars do is they say, well, that's just poetic, flamboyant language. It doesn't really mean that. Okay, And this is usually what scholars do when they don't know what to do with something. Ah, the Bible's just using poetic language. During the Exodus itself, God did not literally march in the form of a man before his people. He led them in the form of the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Um, so you could say, well, they're just sort of exaggerating the Exodus. I would say, no, this is describing Yehovah in the form of a man marching before his people from Sinai to Zion. 
So first of all, there are descriptions within the text that do not align with the real Exodus. Okay, so depending on how literally you take the Bible, that's probably an important point. Second, the, the hermeneutic, the science of interpreting Old Testament scripture of the New Testament interprets Deuteronomy 33 as talking about the return of Jesus. Okay, what do I mean by that? Most of your viewers are familiar with Jude, chapter, uh, well, no, there is no chapters, verse 14 and 15. And it says, the Lord, of course, now it's quoting something. It's quoting an older text. It says that the Lord will come forth with all of his holy ones to execute judgment against the wicked, to punish all of those uh, wicked for their evil deeds and all of these type of things. Now, everyone will acknowledge that that is talking about the return of Jesus, right? Yeah. But yet it's Yehovah. The original context is Yehovah returns with all of his holy ones. Behold, Yehovah comes with all of his holy ones. Well, what is Jude quoting? And this is really fascinating. Hmm. Jude is actually quoting first Enoch. Okay? Huh. So this is something okay. that I think a lot of your audience members will find interesting. So now, I want to be clear. The book of Enoch, it is not scripture. It did not make its way into the canon, but it almost did. It actually came close. There was a lot of debate among the early believers whether or not it should be canonized. I'm someone who believes that we need to trust the sovereign guiding hand of the Lord in determining what is in the canon. There are many in the Hebrew Roots, Hebrew Roots movement today that are sort of adding books or negating books. And personally, I think that's very dangerous. When Yeshua left, he said, I'm going away and I'm sending someone else and he will guide you into all truth. We may not agree with all of the uh, beliefs of the early church, but we have to trust that Jesus is faithful, that Yeshua is faithful, that he did guide them in their humanity, and that we have the authoritative canon of Scripture today, okay? That said, even though Enoch didn't make it into the canon, it was a very popular book, and it contains nuggets of truth. It was widely understood. Jesus would have been familiar with Enoch. The apostles were familiar with Enoch. It was a very popular sacred book. Again, it was not scripture, but it has pieces of scripture as mm -hmm. demonstrated by the fact that Jude himself quotes part of Enoch. So it's almost like referring to a history book of history that hasn't happened yet. They treated that like a history book instead of, a, instead of the Torah. Yeah, I mean, way. obviously it's not. Here's the thing is that the reason we need to be careful is because I would say it this way. Enoch has truth in it. It also has some things that are not true. Mm. So we don't want to treat the whole thing as scripture, but while acknowledging it does have God-breathed truth as evidenced by the fact that Jude at least quotes part of it. Okay, so what is Jude quoting? Well, he's quoting the very beginning of First Enoch, and there's a few different books of Enoch. There's, you know, but we're talking about the, the uh, I guess it comes to us in Hebrew. There's also the Ethiopic and different things. We're talking First Enoch chapter one, and it is a prophecy that is actually drawing from Deuteronomy 33. Oh, so it, okay. So here, here you have a, uh, a two-step sort of pattern. Deuteronomy 33 is, or Enoch is quoting Deuteronomy 33. Jude is quoting Enoch. Okay, Jude, everyone agrees, is talking about the return of Jesus. Who is Enoch talking about? So I'm gonna go ahead and read it. It's, it's really fascinating. And I found a lot of people have never read this. 
And it begins, it's interesting, it begins similarly to the beginning of the blessing of Moses, where he says, Moses, a man of God, but he mixes it with some of the language of Balaam. Balaam has this big sort of prelude before his prophecy in Numbers 24. He's like, Balaam, the man of God who, who sees, you know, the things and all this stuff, who laying down, his eyes closed as if they're open. And, you know, he kind of goes on about how much of a prophet he is. Enoch does the same thing. And then he gets to the actual prophecy. Now listen to this. Enoch said, the great holy one will come forth from his dwelling and the eternal God will tread from there upon Mount Sinai. Huh. So so here's a prophecy widely known by the early church, known by Jesus, known by the apostles that says, God will come from heaven and tread upon Mount Sinai. And then it says, he will appear with his army. He will appear with his mighty host from the heaven of heavens. All the watchers will fear and quake. The watchers, of course, being the, the evil principalities, the rebellious principalities. And all those who are hiding in the ends of the earth will sing. That's those in their bunkers with their beans and bullets, riding out the end times. They come out and they start singing. All the ends of the earth will be shaking. Trembling and fear will seize them. That's the watchers. And then it goes on, skipping forward a few verses. It says, the Lord will protect the righteous. He will bless them. And then in verse 9, behold, he comes with myriads of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to destroy the wicked, to convict all flesh for the wicked deeds they have done, the proud and harsh words which wicked sinners have spoken against him. Hmm. That's the part that Jude quotes. So Jude quotes part of this prophecy. It's the word of God, the inspired word of God in the New Testament, and the rest of the prophecy that most people are not familiar with say that God will come from heaven and he will land on Mount Sinai and he will come with his armies. And it's actually quoting, it's referring back to Deuteronomy 33. And this is, again, scholars will all acknowledge this, but they just don't quite make the clear connection. Why do you think that is? Why do you think they, what are they missing here? I would say that the whole subject of the return of Jesus in the scholarly world is largely disbelieved. They view it as the purview of the fringe, the kooks, the Christians that actually believe that stuff. Um, and, you know, they'll say, yeah, well, you know, Christians believe in the return of Jesus, but we don't really take the way the Old Testament frames it literally. Mm. It's all just poetic. You know what I'm saying? That the, the, There's very few in the academic world that really, I'll say in the truest sense, are believers that the way these things were believed and communicated, they even use a term. They call it the embarrassment of the apocalyptic. So they'll say, you know, you actually get scholars, and this is where preterism comes from. Preterism being the idea that most of the prophecies of the Old Testament are actually fulfilled back in 70 AD. They're all historical. Preter means past, Uh, historical. They basically say, well, Jesus made all these predictions, but they didn't really come to pass, and we need to save Jesus. And the way we save him is by saying, well, he didn't really literally mean that. It was all spiritual. It was allegorical. He's not literally coming back in the clouds in glory. No, he came back in judgment in 70 AD. And this type of thing, it's mm. to basically claim that he didn't really mean what he said, and therefore we save him from uh, being a failed first century apocalyptic prophet. This is Albert Schweitzer. And just so many in the academic world uh, kind of take this approach. But the bottom line is, I believe the Bible. I believe it. I believe as Jesus and the early apostles and early believers would have believed it. And I think it's time that the church today, the believing community today, 
the called out assembly that we get back to believing the things that the early believers believed. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's almost like when Peter said, well, you will not die, Yeshua. I'm not gonna let you die. I'm gonna save you from that embarrassment. And what did Yeshua say? Get thee behind me, Satan. Right. And it's, it's, it's almost like these modern scholars are trying to do the same thing. Save Yeshua from the embarrassment of some of his things. Eh, maybe not coming true. Yeah. Wow, amazing. So with, with Enoch, uh, okay, so that's one proof text that we have that, that sort of backs up to, well, and Jude as well, that backs yep. up to Deuteronomy. So now how else can we know that, that this is, maybe we're on to something here with Yeshua coming back to Sinai, maybe not to the Mount of Olives. Right. I actually, I actually argue in the book. I present the case that he actually may, that Yeshua actually may return to Egypt, hmm. and that he may retra- retrace the entirety of the Exodus, split the sea, Red Sea again, and he will make his way through Sinai. So uh, I'm not real dogmatic about specifically where he first lands, but I know there is a procession from Sinai to Zion. The scriptures are very mm. clear about this. But here's the thing. Okay, so the very first reference in the New Testament to the return of Jesus, Matthew 16, verse 27, Yeshua says, and then the Son of Man, okay, what's he referring back to? Daniel 7. He says, the Son of Man will come in the Father's glory and all of his angels with him. So he comes in glory in radiant, shining glory. He comes with all of his angels with him. That's two. And, okay, so we have that idea. Oh, and he will come. This is a very specific term. He, he will come. Where does that begin? Where does that motif or that theme begin? It begins in Deuteronomy 33. God will come. And it's Yehovah will come. He comes from the south, shining forth, radiating from the south with his armies with him, lightning shooting out of his hand. All of the themes, again, all of the uh, motifs that begin in Deuteronomy 33, we see them repeated throughout the prophets. What does Zechariah say? And then the Lord my God will come Hmm. and all of his holy ones with him. Same thing in Jude, same thing in Enoch. The Lord my God will come. Jesus says the same thing of himself, right? But when Jesus says, then he will come with all of his holy ones, what Old Testament prophecies is he referring to? He's referring to Zechariah. He's referring to Isaiah that says, the Lord my God will come in fire, Hmm. dealing out vengeance against the wicked, giving rewards to the righteous. This is another consistent theme throughout the Old Testament. Punishment for the wicked, rewards for the righteous. We see it in Enoch. We see it again in Jude. We see it in Zechariah. We see it in Isaiah. Jesus applies those things to himself. He's saying that he is Yehovah God Almighty. Look, we talked about the the fact that the covenant at Sinai was a marriage covenant. Mm -hmm. When Jesus calls himself the bridegroom, He's making it very, any Old Testament literate Jew knows when you say that you're the bridegroom, you're saying that you are Yehovah God of Sinai. No one would have understood it in any other way, right? And so all of these statements, he's referring back not only to the fact that he's the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Eve, but he is also the one that the prophet said, God will come. He will come from Sinai. He will march forth from the south, shooting out lightning out of his hands and all of these type of things. And as we'll, we'll get into some more, especially in Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter three, um, it is a graphic, some of the most graphic 
technicolor, beautifully detailed descriptions of the return of Jesus in the entire Bible. And most people aren't even aware that they're messianic prophecies. Mm. Now, coming from the South, let me ask you that. Uh, how do we know, because the South is a pretty ambiguous term. Anywhere south of, I'm assuming they're saying south of Israel, south of Jerusalem, anywhere there. Yeah. How do we know that's, that south is Sinai? How, where do we get this idea? So in a general sense, south is just Negev, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he identifies particular landmarks. Ah. He says he will come from Seir, from Mount Paran, from Edom, from Basra, right? We see it in Isaiah 63. That's a big one. And it uses very particular landmarks, Mount Sinai. And this is why the location of Mount Sinai, it's one of the reasons why it's relevant. If he's coming from Sinai, where's he coming from? And so it uses the language of um, their parallelisms. Like they're all down in that region of modern day Southern Jordan, everywhere from Petra all the way down to Northwest Saudi Arabia, where Mount Sinai is, Jebel al-Laws. All of the mountains in between and within that area are named by name. And it Mm. says he's marching forward from that area. He's marching and he's shining. Those Those are the two primary descriptors of his coming. He's shining, he's marching forward. And first he comes back riding on the clouds. So he is the cloud rider and he is the desert marcher. Wow, that does sound a lot like like Exodus where you've got the cloud by night and the fire by day and that fire would be his shining, I guess, as as he's marching. It's very interesting how he draws a a, a literary map, as it were, uh, back to Israel. Wow. So now you mentioned something in, uh, uh, you mentioned Judges 5 to me. What what are we finding in Judges 5 regarding this subject? So Judges 5 is the story when Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, uh, defeat Sisera. He is the commander of the army of the Canaanites. Okay, so the Canaanites live in the land of Israel, Canaan, and they're the pagans that live in the land. And we know the story where Deborah takes the lead, the leaders of Israel join with her, and they defeat Sisera. And then ultimately uh, he gets a, tent peg through the, through the uh, forehead or through the, his uh, temple. And then afterwards, Deborah and Barak sing a song. And if you look at Judges 5, it's the song of Deborah and Barak. It has many numerous similarities and commonalities to Judge, I'm sorry, to Deuteronomy 33. Huh. It talks about God coming. But see, now it's using the language of God coming. God saved them in the past. Deborah applies it to the current victory over Sisera, but she's still looking forward to the ultimate victory. You talk about the cyclical pattern. So they use uh, the Exodus, they use the events of the Exodus as something to remember. God did this in the past. He just did it again right in front of Deborah and the armies of Israel, and yet he's going to do it again. So Judges 5 is the next of the most significant of the desert prophecies. And when you work through these, when you compare Deuteronomy 33, you can bear Judges 5, you compare Habakkuk 3, Psalm 68, Isaiah 63, there's so many others. You compare them, you compare First Enoch, and you realize, oh wow, they all have so many commonalities. They're all drawing from the original foundation of Deuteronomy 33. Hmm. Amazing, amazing. So this this highway in the desert. Do you want to get into that now, or you want to wait for that uh, for another another episode? Yeah, we're going to jump into it. We're going to dig in. We're going to go deep in the okay. next episode. But okay. let me just say this. So essentially, what I'm saying is that we have this vision of the return of Jesus that he just bursts forth from heaven, essentially with a magic wand. He just snaps his fingers and says, "All things new." 
the armies of the Antichrist just are just defeated, you know, like that. Everything is restored. No, he returns from heaven with a sword. And in the same way that he came the first time, and that he, there was a process, there was a, a complex, there was a whole lifetime. His, his return is not that complex, but it unfolds over a period of time. And there is a very real, literal carrying out and affecting of the victory of the Messiah over his enemies. It's some time after he returns that he kills the Antichrist and his armies, that he's killing many of them, slaughtering them. Isaiah 63, we'll get into that. He's soaked in the blood of his enemies. And the book of Revelation draws from all of this Old Testament imagery, again, much of which is forgotten or ignored by many Christian scholars, but this was all widely understood. It was well known by the early believers. So there is going to be a mighty procession, a victorious procession. Psalm 68 calls it the procession of God. Hmm. And it's like something out of the Lord of the Rings glorified this mighty victorious army. The armies of heaven are with him. He's leading them. Uh, We are with him, again, in glorified, resurrected bodies. He's setting the prisoners free. He's pouring out the wrath of God, and he's marching forward. And Isaiah has multiple prophecies where he talks about, prepare the way through the desert for our God. Prepare this highway in the desert, in the wilderness. And again, we think, well, that's just all metaphorical, or it was all fulfilled when John the Baptist prepared the hearts of the people. Again, cyclical. It is literal, He will literally march in the same way that there was a highway through the desert with the Exodus. Jesus, Yeshua, as the greater Moses, will lead his people in one final ultimate victory procession from Sinai up to Zion. And the scriptures, the prophets testify to this thoroughly. Mm. And again, they describe it in beautiful detail. And so I'm so excited to be able to share and sort of open these prophecies up for the church, because to me, the return of Jesus, it's the blessed hope. It's the anchor of hope for my soul. It's what gets me through the storm. And I think it will be very encouraging for other people as well. Well, I appreciate you bringing all these out because I don't know how many people have thought about it this way. I certainly have not. So Joel, we're not done here yet. We gotta come back for at least one more week. Uh, and thank you for doing so. And thank you for joining us. Uh, this is uh, the return of Yeshua revisited, I think. <laughs> and we're going to get more into it next week. Uh, some of these exciting new things that we're seeing in the Bible that has been in our Bibles all the time. We've just never seen it this way. And Joel Richardson is opening this up for us. We want to thank you for joining us this week on Shabbat Night Live. And we will see you again next week. Until then, Shavua Tov and Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. 